Welcome to the Uninformed Handball Hour after some amazing games of handball, real nail-biter finishes and an incredible Group B shaping up. I'm exhausted after today. How are you doing, Chris and Brian? Ah, well... I'm a bit disappointed watching that Iceland-Netherlands game. I was like, you know, whoever's going to win this, I'm actually going to be happy for them. The two teams you watch and you're like, it's good to see them have success. But then I was like, a draw was the fair result at the end of that. And that ludicrous attacking foul decision in the final minute really uh, cost the Netherlands a point there. Uh, And it's a pity, but it's still wide open for them, even with the loss. I think they don't even have to win their final game and they could go through. So uh, the fairy tale is still alive for the Dutch. And today was a good day. The last couple of days since our last podcast have been good days. Yeah, it's been, I think, really, really entertaining. And I think it's been slowly increasing over the last few days. But to just to touch on what Chris said there, probably Aaron Parmesan, probably the dive of the tournament. Would you call it a dive? <laughs> or is that not fair? <laughs> I think it was, it was very tactically astute, I would say. Uh, he knew when the pressure was on the referees and if I fall over here and all of a sudden there's a bit of panic and they didn't see something oh attacker foul it must be so I think probably well played by him good captain really you know a good man you want to have on your side who knows when to pull out a move like that the dark arts yeah that's that's the bit of experience that uh, top teams have to to get those results that Netherlands don't yet have but uh, of course we'll just go back and say that literally just as that foul happened, we were complimenting the referees and the performance and so far, and especially their use of the VAR, which has been really successful, I think. It's such a quick turnaround and makes key decisions. It's found a real good niche of, okay, does the ball cross the line or has a player just been hit in the face and they've been correct most of the time. So good refereeing so far in the tournament great game though nonetheless and i think it really showed how much the netherlands and not like we shouldn't have two whole podcast podcasts dedicated in a row to the netherlands but this is the last game we saw so i think we can we can uh, touch on it a little bit before we move on but producing another performance like they did today really shows that they are the real deal at this championship it wasn't just a one-off fluke and uh, to come back into that game as they did five goals down and almost get a draw there was very impressive. Can we just take a, a couple more moments to appreciate the performance from Kai Smits? That was an unbelievable game from him. And it was actually a historic game. So I've got some facts on him that um, I got from Twitter, from Rasmus and Fabian Koch. Very uh, worth following Fabian Koch for some great stats on the HF Euro. But... He was the fourth player ever to score 10 plus goals in the first two games of a championship. He was also only the 15th player ever to score 13 goals in a championship. And his, he's played five European in a game. championship in a game, in a game. And he's, be, he's played five European championship games and hasn't scored less than seven goals. 
So <laughs> over the two tournaments, he scored 7, 7, 8, 11, 13. So I'm expecting 15 goals from him in the next game to bring <laughs> Netherlands to the main round. Well, yeah, it's, it's not only his fifth game, it's all of their fifth game, which is incredible to think that when we spoke to them, Chris, uh, we sat down with Bobby Shaggins and uh, Shaggins, Bobby Schragen on... <laughs> <laughs> and, geez, I'm losing it. Here. You're German. the Flemish speaker as well, Brian. <laughs> oh my god! When we, when, uh, when we sat down with with Bobby and Kai back before the last Euro, it was literally like we're sitting down with you know the people who were just happy to be here. And a Euro later, and they just seem like the most like they they really belong here. Not only do they belong here, you feel like they give anybody a game, which is really really incredible. And it's a uh, it's a really enticing game now on Tuesday evening between the Netherlands and Portugal like the new underdogs versus the old underdogs and I just can't wait to see the battle between Kai Smits and Luke Steins against that big old Portuguese defense like it's gonna be a real clash of styles I have no idea how it's gonna go there may be one or two decapitations but it's uh, it's going to be fun. I'm just happy that those two guys in the Netherlands don't play against Belarus because they would actually be decapitated, and especially Bokan, who is just gunning for the hit shithouser of the tournament crown this year. Uh, well, his chances are, are going away quickly because uh, they're out of the championship. Belarus are now out. But Chihaz per minute has been pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I didn't uh, I didn't keep my eye too much on the, the Belarus Poland game, but again, another feather in your cap, Alex, for your Polish side who you, you fancy to go uh, a long way at this championship. They're through to the main round. Absolutely. And they yeah, showed some great handball in this game against Belarus. I have that on at the same time i've mastered the dual screen now and um, so working well i haven't built up to three screens yet and um, I, I think that's physically impossible but <laughs> i was particularly impressed with Elenicek, who um we kind of single out as a potential star and to date i hadn't seen him really take over a game but he did that uh, he got player of the match he really tore apart and had that confidence that uh, I was looking for. Uh, I'm really impressed by Poland um, and looking forward to seeing more and more of them. Yeah, uh, we've already moved on from the other game in Group B tonight. and It feels like a long time ago already. I mean, so many results to talk about, we can we can fly through, but uh, Hungary finally getting themselves a win in what was uh, enthralling. It wasn't a very pretty game. By any means, uh, the handball wasn't always great, but the atmosphere, again, rocking. And this time, they seem to enjoy the atmosphere a little bit. In particular, Dominic Mathe, who scored eight goals, including a uh, barnstorming match winner just before the buzzer against Portugal, who are now on the edge of elimination. And uh, yeah, you got to feel for them as well, because that was a, an entertaining game where it felt like nobody deserved to lose. Hungary, I was impressed by them because they used the energy of the crowd this time. They were really getting pumped up throughout the game and it seemed to help them. And they did, you know, they went into a three-goal lead towards the end and it, it seemed like they were going to run away with it or at least close it up. And the panic snuck back in and Portugal got the ball to line players very easily and it, it 
it really seemed like they lost it. Um, so it's amazing to see Mate come up with that big goal. Uh, he did struggle as well in the first game. So again, good to see him step forward. Still not, you know, incredibly impressed by Hungary and not impressed enough to warrant all the medal considerations they were getting before the tournament. But I hope they can keep growing and keep using the energy of the crowd as the tournament goes on. And I, I would really want to see them in the main round, at least, to just keep the energy in the Budapest Arena thriving. Keep growing, I think, is, is the key there. I think and a goal like that for, for Dominic Mate, uh, there was so much talk about him before the tournament. And he's going he's gonna to have a spring in his step tomorrow when he wakes up with that that looking at those highlights again, he's a Hungarian hero almost overnight. And I think they probably needed him to almost have those kind of moments because he's been, there's been a lot of talk about him. And now he's really has that, that big Euro goal, big, big Euro, Euro win. And, and I think it's, that's a big plus for them. So you could see them in the next game going up another level and hopefully they will. I, I don't want to dampen the mood too much, but the result between Iceland and the Netherlands now, uh, hasn't really helped Hungary in any way because Doing quick maths here, if Hungary do beat Iceland, as they, they feel like they need to, and the Netherlands beat Portugal, the three teams go into a head-to-head, and the Netherlands have won a game by three and uh, lost one by one, so they're on plus two goal difference, Iceland on plus one, and Hungary on minus three. So in that case, if the Netherlands beat Portugal, Netherlands are through, <laughs> and it's between Iceland and Hungary to go through in second place then. Uh, which is phenomenal, or potentially first place, depending on how much they win by. And even if the if Iceland beat Hungary and Portugal beat the Netherlands, then it's Hungary, Netherlands, and Portugal who go into a three-way race. And again, Hungary have only won by one goal against Portugal. They lost by three against the Netherlands, so they're in minus two goals. Netherlands are in plus three, and Portugal on minus one. So it's bad news at the moment for Hungary. I tell you what, Chris, I'm glad you're here uh, <laughs> because my, <laughs> my brain does not go to those places. <laughs> I said, yeah, I said but- quick math. It wasn't so long, quick after all, but uh, it's, uh, it's a lot. It all depends, of course, on how the last games go. Nothing is guaranteed, but uh, win and then you see how you get on. And in Hungary's case, try to win by a lot. Definitely. And it's crazy to think that they were level with Netherlands with a couple of minutes to go and manage to lose by three goals. So really important every game is absolutely crucial in this championship on that hungary portugal game another another thing that crossed my mind during the second half because while hungary was scoring 100 percent in the first 10 minutes or so in the second half uh martin shikeli was making some really big saves for the hungarian side and then it crossed my mind it was like oh wait a second shikeli played some of the second half of the season with porto under tragic circumstances of course because he uh, after the uh, death of Alfredo Quintana, uh, Vesprem loaned him out to Porto for the rest of the season just to play in league games. Crazy to think what must have been going through Jacelli's mind, uh, maybe after the game as well, or even while he was on the court, because he went there under very emotional circumstances. And uh, it must have been a, a real bonding experience in a, in a way that nobody expected. And there he was then basically saving Hungary against some of or a number of his former teammates. So uh, something to bear in mind there. And all of that was just on Sunday night where there was only four games. How about the eight games on Saturday night? (laughs) But 
We're going to take a break before we go into all those games on Saturday night and look ahead to the final round of matches in the preliminary round because we've got a big interview for you today. And it's with one of the emerging profiles of this championship. It's Francis Carl Conan, who is playing his first major championship only at a handful of games for the French team before coming into this. And he has a pretty incredible story. Originally from Ivory Coast, he was discovered by Dauda Caraboué, the French international goalkeeper, while playing in the Ivory Coast. And uh, Caraboué took a big chance and convinced him to go over to France and, and try his luck at the age of 17. Now, almost nine years later, here he is playing for the national team and uh, he's been a, a real revelation in defence for them. Great story. Let's hear it from the man himself. Here is Carl Godel. Carl, thanks a lot for for taking the time to chat with us. I think for the international handball audience, you're quite a a newcomer. And from what we've heard, you have a a fascinating story. I'm sure you've been asked about it loads of times, but maybe you could could give us a bit of an insight into your story. And I would like to take it back to when you were 14 years old and a a certain Ivorian French handball player you met at home. Yeah, I was playing basketball at first, at the beginning. And uh, one day I wanted to try handball uh, with some friends. I like it because my mother played also handball when she was young. And after this, I met uh, Dauda Karabwe, the international goalkeeper of the French team a few, few years ago. And he proposed me to, to try uh, some, some tests in different clubs in France. At the beginning, I wanted to be focused on my, uh, on my law studies. So it was not in the plan to, to, to be a professional handball player. And I say, why not? I make a lot of reflection with my parents because it was a good, uh, a really important decision for myself and for my my future. I found that it was a good opportunity for me. I uh, handball is my passion. I finish also my studies. I'm in the last year of master, so it's cool. I play handball and I I finish my studies, so it's cool. I wasn't quite sure there. So you started playing when you're 14. And then how long was it before you started to get, have talks with people to move then to France? What's the timeline there? I began, um, yes, on 14. And three years after, I met Dauda Karabwe. And the fourth year, I was in France. And, <laughs> and then the year after, I was signing a contract, a pro contract with FX. That's, wow. That's phenomenal. Paint a picture about handball in Cote d'Ivoire and and how it's like what what what's the scene like and what was it for you as a teenager I think that in 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 Haverkos we have a lot of potential I'm not the only one and maybe I'm not the the best <laughs> there's a lot of potential in, in Haverkos but the problem is that uh, we are not enough prepared like in France with the when you are a kid, you are prepared to to every step uh, until the the professional uh, profile, you know. So there's a lot of problem of infrastructure, but uh, I hope with my story I can uh, inspire a lot of people who believe that uh, it's possible. Because if I reach to here, it's possible for everybody. 
that early move then to France when you arrived in France, what it was like for you personally trying to settle in and with your first new professional club? The first year, the first year was, uh, it was a little difficult because of the climate, you know, <laughs> it was uh, it was too cold for me. I arrived in November. <laughs> the, the the summer for me was uh, 20, 20 degrees and I arrived in the country with, uh, with 16 or something like this. So it was a little difficult. But uh, now it's the only problem. It's the only little problem. I have been really, really well uh, integrated in the in the team. I was uh, there was a lot of people around me to to protect me and to show me the the direction in handball or the out of handball with my friends, but and my uh, my my team uh, my teammates. So it was uh, it was very cool. I think Ace was the the best destination for me at the beginning. There was Nukasa Daozic as coach. Uh, Luka Karabacic still played there for the his last year before moving to to Paris. So it was a, a good school to to learn the the, the handball basis. How funny that all those years later now that you've taken his place for this championship in the center of the defense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, after I, I I take his place uh, uh, during his having a rest, uh, it's, uh, the story is uh, is incredible because I was I I remember that in X I was behind him and I was following his uh, his advices about how to play, how to to have the position in defense. So it was cool, and we kept uh, after he went to Paris, we kept uh, we kept contact. Uh, and with Nuka also, Sardarozic. So that's cool. That's cool. The, that's Landed in X eventually, but I know you had some trials with other clubs like Nantes. And in a situation like that also for, for any young player, I can imagine it's very difficult to, knowing that you have a very short time to, to make an impression uh, and to get a contract with a team. What did you find was the, the biggest difference between your experience in handball back home in Ivory Coast and what you're experiencing with these new clubs in France on the court? I think the the level of professional, the infrastructure, everything was was, was uh, right. Everything was at its position. You have the time, you have to be there. Everything is uh, was well planned. In, in Ivory Coast, we don't have this kind of organization, you know. Uh, this is the point that we have to work and we will uh, we could uh, get out a lot of potential everything is about organization i think and how has it been for you now making your appearance for the national team in france how has the the journey been to that point and your first few big experiences on the european stage for sure, I was a little stressed at the beginning when I get uh, saw my name on the on the final list. But it was a good uh, good stress. Uh, I always dream about about that uh, since I'm young. I I remember that I I got the poster of the of the national team with Zidinara in the beginning uh, when I was 14 and be here today. Take his place uh, something like this is is incredible and it's uh it's permit me to to show to myself that i can that i put all the all the things to be here 
Brilliant. And I heard from Kevin Domas, who's been uh, speaking to you a lot, that you were particularly nervous before the first game against Croatia. Uh, the the atmosphere was uh, very very special uh, when we get on in the on the ground and everybody was was high. It was uh, it was incredible. But I I like it to play in this in this uh, this arena. It was really 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 interesting, and I was more motivated to show myself and to show my my potential to on the international uh, level. The game you played against Croatia, I was commentating on it, and it was incredible because it looked like you really belonged to that defense, even though you were so new to it. And you were everywhere. You played such a clean game. You were always there tackling, uh, no real heavy fouls or anything, but you looked very natural in the position. Was there was there a certain point in the game where you thought, okay, I know exactly what I'm doing here and I feel really comfortable? Or were you a bit on edge for the entire match? Now, I have to say that I have been really, really well uh, integrated in the team uh, since my first stages. Everybody was cool with me and everybody showed me, uh, make me confident. And even the coach told me what he wanted for me what it was expected for for me so uh, i was really comfortable at the at the first and i know that my my strength is to move uh, a lot and to go everywhere and i uh, i make it uh, by myself natural and i uh, am at the service of the team is that is that what the coach said to you that he wants you to be active moving around or what would, when he said to you I want you to do this. What what exactly did he say to you? What that your role is in the team? Uh, no, he showed me the the system of the team. I uh, I stay in the system of the team. He know my my qualities of moving uh, fast and to help uh, the others afterwards. So he, he told me you stay in the system, but you can do what you do in your club, uh, but at the system of on the team of the team. It's pro- it's probably top secret anyway. You probably can't tell us the secret. Yes, it's a <laughs> secret team. Fair enough. Fair enough, Carl. Uh, have you noticed a lot of new interest in the Ivory Coast at home since this championship has begun? I guess in the handball community, everybody's already talking about you and and sending you good wishes. But have you noticed a lot of interest uh, from fans or the media back in the Ivory Coast? Yes, everybody, everybody followed this, and it's cool. It was a good, important choice for myself, but uh, they know that I'm I'm stay somewhere Ivorian. It's my homeland, and uh, they're happy for for my uh, my life and for the for what I achieve until here. You've had to make some big choices to on this journey. Like you said, you were studying back at home. You had to to give up on studying law to to go to France. And and there you, you knew there was no guarantee of success when you go to France. Has these choices and, and the success you have had, does that have a big influence in the way that you look at the sport and uh, I guess the success that you've had so far? Yes, for sure. I, making this decision, I was not sure that I, I would have success like this. Uh, it was a big sacrifice. After I, I got the support of my family and of Dauda, so 
I was confident on my, myself and I, I try. If you don't try, you don't know if you you can get success or not. So uh, for the moment, it's cool. So uh, I hope that it will continue. Brilliant. Carl, I know you have to take a rest and get ready for the big game against Serbia tomorrow. Uh, hopefully we'll have another great atmosphere for that game as well. Uh, did you see the game last night and the, the intense atmosphere? Uh, yeah, for sure. And it was uh, with, I don't know, 7,000 people in the in the arena. It was incredible. Uh, I think that everybody in the team is waiting for this kind of match. I we know that it will be uh, it will be very important for Croatia or for Serbia also. So we we uh, we will be focused on us to get uh, the most of point for the second round. Good stuff, Carl. Thanks a lot for the chat and keep up the good work. Thank you. Incredible story from Carl, and looking forward to see if he can fill Didier Denar's shoes at this tournament. Uh, I like the way that initially you compared him to Luka Karabatic, and he was like, no, no, I'm taking Denar's shoes here. I'm I'm better than (laughs) this. (laughs) I like that confidence. But France got a very easy win in, in their second game of the tournament, really didn't come out of second gear against Ukraine. I don't think there's too much to talk about. Uh, they got a chance to rotate the squad, which they've been doing in the tournament so far. So still waiting to see um, France getting challenged at this tournament. But the big shock of um, the game day had to be Norway losing to Russia 23-22. And well, it's a surprise, but in many ways... It's not that surprising. So I think Norway didn't have the hype going into this tournament for a reason. And none of us had them kind of anywhere near the medals. And there wasn't that much buzz going around it. Even though after our interview with Sagasen, I got a little bit more excited. Um, But it seems to not be clicking for him at this tournament so far. I want to ask you a question. Alex, because uh, I think you saw a lot more of this than I did because I was doing the Serbia-Croatia battle at the same time. But Patrick Rowlands on Twitter, he's a commentator for Norwegian national broadcaster, said that uh, Christian Berger said before the match that we must not be tempted into shooting from nine metres. Norway then took 16 shots from nine metres and scored three of them. That's 19%. uh, 19%. Uh, and Patrick asks, and I'm asking you, did Norway fall into a Russian trap here? I, a little bit. Uh, so it, it, it's I didn't know that uh, they wanted to avoid uh, shooting nine meters because it was very successful for them in the first game. So um, they they took 19 nine meter shots against Slovakia and scored 12 of them. So that was very successful. But against Russia, um, obviously that, that didn't work. And again, we've seen handball move away from that nine meter shot uh, and it's something that Norway haven't really done but I think overall Norway's problem is that they've become too predictable um, especially uh, I was watching a game and Reinkind does the same thing every single time he fakes outside goes inside and either takes a shot or kind of barrels through. He does it every single time. At the same time, Sagasen is becoming a little bit predictable because he 
moves really into the middle, takes his big jump and makes a decision from there. And what Russia did was just wait for both of those moves, which is 60% of Norway's attacks. Um, I think Christian O'Sullivan hasn't really clicked in this tournament so far. He's, he hasn't been the kind of wild card that they need him to be to, to do something different. Um, and it comes down to a thought that I had at the start of this tournament. And I actually asked uh, Sander about that, whether this team is getting a little bit stale. I said it in uh, slightly kinder words. Um, and he had full confidence in the squad that they have. But it really feels like the Norwegian team is getting a little bit stale. And I put that blame a little bit on Christian Berger because Norway have just been playing with the same nine players for the last six years. You know, even on the wing, Gullikson is an incredible right winger who has uh, kind of lit up the Bundesliga this season. But he just he doesn't get minutes um, ahead of Christian Bjornsson. Even when there is star players there, um, they just don't get a chance. And, you know, Norway should have been integrating players into the broader scheme way earlier. Um, now that they're missing uh, Garn Sugar and Magnus Rud, that squad is diminished. And you have a player like Simon Pedersen, who's been incredible for Elverum, kind of just taking his first minutes in this championship or a player like Grondel who didn't even get called up. And I think that's that's a bit of an issue. And you said integrate there and, and Grundahl, that was one of the reasons I've been reading that he wasn't included in the squad because they didn't have time to integrate him. But at the same time, the kind of championship this is, you have Croatia who are dipping into their 44th choice player or something like that to come into the squad, just throw them in there, and they're they're winning matches against Serbia with them. So I mean, this this is not a championship where I think you can rely on those kind of excuses. Nobody had a, a normal build up to this. So yeah, it, it feels like in in hindsight, it was a gamble worth taking, particularly when you could could take twenty players with you. Absolutely, yeah, I was a terrible decision but it also just it is the way that Christian Berger thinks he has his set players and he'll only play with them and now that they're missing two of those set players it, it, it's just more difficult and um, but let's not take it away from Russia who um, executed a really good game plan especially defensively so in attack they still struggled a, a little bit but defensively they really shut down Norway and yeah, th- there's a bright future for this Russian team. And just one last props because they do have a right-handed uh, right-back. The only team in the tournament that has a full-time right-handed right-back in uh, Kotov playing who does a really good job of just attacking that outside. So exciting for Russia. And they could get knocked out if they lose to Slovakia tomorrow. But that's not going to happen, huh? Slovakia won a game. They beat Lithuania, which actually puts them in contention. So uh, that's another group where things could come down to a nice three-way league table. Brian, what a game or games on Saturday night stood out for you? Um, well, I was in the arena for, for Spain-Sweden. Mm. And uh, another very enjoyable game. I think I was really impressed, actually, with how Spain... We talk about Norway not integrating any new players and how Spain have 
said goodbye to their old guard and integrated some new players who, yeah, I think in certain parts of the game, in attack especially, looked a little bit sometimes out of sorts, but weren't punished for it. And then as the game went on, they grew into it a lot more. And Fernandez on the wing was just, it was just absolutely incredible. I mean, before the game, we were doing Instagram stories and I wanted to put a focus on the wings, which we ended up not doing anyway, but um, we didn't. And uh, both wingers, Fernandez and Hampus Vane, were, were, the, were, the, were the keystones for, for both sides. Um, but Spain, Sweden, you could watch, it, you watch them play a hundred times and it's going to be, it's going to be really entertaining. They're just two great sides to watch. I think Sweden looked very, very frustrated in the second half. And I was sitting beside Jim Godfredson when he came down to the bench and he was constantly talking to the table and not even watching the game. Every time he came off, he was just looking over the table and chatting to them about referee decisions. And I was kind of thinking, just focus on the game a bit more. Every time he came off, he was doing it. And it's, it's like almost like his head was somewhere else. And he did play well, I'm not saying that. But it was just maybe... Something not quite right with them on that on that evening. They just seemed a little bit off. I don't know how what you seemed. It didn't seem like the Sweden that I was expecting. Maybe it's an interesting one because I had really hyped Sweden going into the tournament, having as my winners, but they they were just inferior to Spain in every way in that game, which was a huge surprise for me. Um, they were missing Max Darsh, who tested positive for. COVID, which is really unfortunate for them because he is there. He's a big defensive presence and has become better and better in attack. And I don't think Pedersen is really good enough uh, of a line player for them. Yeah. To, to replace Max Darsh. Um, otherwise, yeah, it, it, they just seem frustrated. It's a, it's a really good way of putting it uh, on Spain's side. It was just amazing to see Canaeus have an absolute barnstormer of a game. <laughs> you gotta love it. He's, you know, he's gone into semi-retirement in Cadet Schaffhausen <laughs> and then shows, <laughs> and shows up and uh, throws a few rockets into the top corner. So what Spain have done extremely well is that integration and they allow their kind of newer players. They're not all young. So uh, Pacina is their new defensive specialist who's replaced Vera Moros. He's 31 years old. He's been playing for this Spanish B team for a long time. And that's probably one thing that Spain um, have done really well to allow this integration is that for many years now, they've had a Spanish second team playing high-level competitive ma- matches. So players like Casado, Tarafeta and Pacina have been regulars in those second team matches against top nations like Argentina. And, you know, Spain would always come out very competitively out of those games. So they've been able to layer them in very easily. And uh, that shows I still don't fully believe in Spain as a um, full contender in this championship because I don't think you get that performance from Canaeus uh, every time. And they need one player to just erupt in every game uh, to uh, you know get the big victories and it, it's just not as obvious without someone like Alex Dushbev. Any other games yet? I think we have to go into the big occasion of yes. the weekend and that was the Balkan Derby between Croatia and Serbia. You were commentating, you were in the arena Chris, you were listening to the fans go absolutely mental. How was it? Ah, it was great fun. 
It's fantastic. Even towards the end of the France-Ukraine game, you could hear that the arena started to buzz up already. And uh, just an amazing atmosphere, a completely sold out uh, arena in terms of uh, tickets available, just over 8,100. And yeah, it was brilliant. Both sets of fans really disrespecting each other's nationality at the start. But that, uh, and I was getting worried, I'll be honest. Like we had, I think after five or six minutes of actual time, we had a minute played. We're going to be here all night, people. (laughs) (laughs) We had like two, two minute suspensions. We had uh, about six mops on the floor trying to uh, sweep up the beer. But after that, like initial, everyone got it out of their system in terms of like the the nasty stuff from the fans. And after that, it was just a brilliant occasion. And it was exactly the game that we all thought it would be in terms of how tight it was. And your scoreline prediction, Alex, was was pretty damn good in the end. Uh, 21-21, you had a 23-20 was the final score. It was just a real slog. And I have, have to give so much credit to to both teams, but particularly to Croatia, who really don't care they are the they're the burnley of handball but much better if you know what I mean. they don't care <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, is, that's niche. Really, that is so niche that's a really weird way <laughs> I mean, burnley really but nice. better or like how about a Jose Mourinho uh, handball team? No, no, you know what? They're they're like Stoke City when they had Rory Delap taking those long uh, throw-ins from the sideline. They're getting really niche here. <laughs> no, too niche, too niche. Sorry, it's so niche. They, are, they are like a, they are a bit like a Jose Mourinho team when when they win because they ju- they don't care what anyone thinks of them. They know how, what best way to to get a result is. They can play. In any way you want. They throw out different systems of attack and defense. They have different players who can provide different things. Lucas Sindrich, for example, was just phenomenal. Like, what a what a return to the fray for him. But no team makes time disappear quite like Croatia. And you really have to feel for Serbia, who just like every time they had a two-minute suspension advantage, uh, it just disappeared before their eyes because they had one attack and then time disappeared. It was... Uh, yeah, really composed performance in that sense from Croatia. They withstood a lot of pressure. They did everything they had to do. Uh, Tin Lucin, again, was fantastic. You mentioned him in the last podcast, Brian. He's been a, a standout. Uh, Ivan Martinovic really stepped up to the mark as well. Uh, as I said, they had two new left wingers because of COVID cases. And um, yeah, they all just they all just had a really good game. And in particular... I have to give a big shout out to Mate Shunjic, the second choice goalkeeper who came into the squad and uh, who came into the game kind of unexpectedly for Ivan Pesic and made uh, four or five really, really important saves in that second half. He's got an interesting story as well. He's 34 years old, he's playing in Ivry in France and uh, somebody I'll look into a little bit more, supposedly a really smart guy, just like a, a maths and engineering whiz. So you'd like him, Alex, and uh, turns out to be a really good goalkeeper as well. All wide open, though, in that group still, because Serbia, who who didn't play a bad game themselves, and now take on France, a team that they beat and drew against in qualification as well. So overall, I think heading into this final uh, round of matches, there's a lot to look forward to. Just one more point on that, and... Serbia just are lacking a bit of firepower and I was 
trying to think why, and it came to me that uh, Peter Djordjic is not playing in this championship. Um, I'm not sure. He did. He played in the first game. Played in the first game. He wasn't in the squad for yeah. He wasn't in the squad for Saturday's game, but he did come on uh, in the first game and he, he scored a goal as well. But I, I don't know the exact reason why. But he he didn't play on Saturday. But I guess he's just not fit. Yeah, and, and, and that might be one of the let's say COVID side effects uh, on this Serbian team, which is very unfortunate. But I was really looking forward to seeing uh, Kugic and Georgic line up together as they've been doing in Benfica and um, has been really effective and Georgia has been having an incredible season and um, just bombing away and I think that's something that Serbia are missing quite a lot uh, at this championship. So Alex I noticed on Twitter you were talking about that you've probably never seen more in-flight goals at this tournament. There's a couple of trends that I've really liked at this Euro. That is one of them. In-flight goals have become an absolute mainstay in uh, normal handball play, which is exciting to see. Uh, but it's also pretty incredible to see teams go to it again and again. And we saw Spain score three of them in one game, but also in that Iceland-Netherlands game, in the last five minutes, both teams attempted an in-flight goal. When there's you know the game on the line, Iceland scored, Netherlands almost scored an incredible goal, but Boomhauer threw it behind his back and then a little bit wide. So it's exciting. I think it's because defences are becoming more and more aggressive. There's space for people to run in around and uh, take advantage of that space. So it's pretty exciting. Another trend that I noticed um, throughout the game, uh, throughout the games today, in both the Portugal and the Netherlands games, was... Have you noticed in close games, when a timeout is called, the coach gives his little segment and it's always the playmaker that comes up and says, okay, yeah, yeah, fine, coach. No, this is what we're doing. It happened in <laughs> for Portugal with Rui Silva. He came in and was like, okay, we're doing this, we're playing this, this is how the ball's going. It happened for Netherlands with Luke Steins, where he came in and was like, this is exactly what we're doing. And it actually happened with Hungary and Lekai taking over and making that key decision. So I, I love that. Yeah, no, I did notice that. The thing about the, the playmakers, because I often go onto the court during the time I record bits, and I, it's always coach first. And then, for example, at the Sweden game, Jim Gofferson would speak every single time out. I've noticed that too. And a trend I don't like is spitting at fans uh, or opposing fans, which Marco Lasicia did um, after Montenegro's game against North Macedonia, where he ran up to the North Macedonian fans, who have been incredible at this tournament. It's been great to see them and um, got quite angry and spit at them and justifiably got a €5,000 fine. Uh, but yeah. Hopefully, won't be seeing more of that trend. Yeah, there's no way back after that. Gone too far. You can't apologize your way out of doing something like that. It's just not, not good. Montenegro, who won it, now have a chance to go through to the main round. Uh, They're playing against Slovenia in a big game in Group A. Loads of tickets for the main round up for grabs on the final day. Uh, how many people have actually qualified before we go? So, Denmark have qualified. Poland have qualified, Germany have qualified, Spain have qualified, and that's it. That means there are eight spots in the main round still to be contested in the final two days of the preliminary round. So that's pretty exciting. 
And we'll be back on Wednesday the 19th with a live show. Yes, we're going back in. Not for three hours this time, but again, we're going to fire through all the games to come in the main round and predict them with a few special guests. I I can't believe we haven't talked about this. It's been the biggest game of the whole week. I can't. Alex, you had a game today, didn't you? <laughs> Let's say my game went as well as your prediction between Denmark and Slovenia, ah. and leave it at that. I thought we were going to go one podcast and I bring it up where I stand in the leader tables. Oh my god! More chat about the prediction game and all the main round games to come on Wednesday afternoon. I think the idea is to do it at four o'clock on the Home of Handball Twitch channel. So join us then or listen to it afterwards on the podcast. Until then, take care and goodbye.